Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have with me Adapia Dorico. Adapia is a principal and the VP of strategy at Alpha Investing, a private capital network that connects investors to real estate investment opportunities. She's a visionary leader, entrepreneur, investor, and powerful keynote speaker who is passionate about empowerment from spiritual to financial. And we actually met through Alpha Investing. We're going to get into real estate and crowdfunding and, and what you're seeing in the space. But I want to talk about this women and wealth concept first. Why are there so few women professionals in commercial real estate? Yeah, that's like a big question in so many industries, like across the board and in finance. I think it's I think it all stems from the conditioning that that we have growing up, like the fields that women are told that they should go into. And it starts young. It starts really, really young. And for me, like my parents always pushed me to basically, they said, you can do whatever you want. And like, they almost treated me like a boy in that sense. Like I was the firstborn. So I had this like responsibility. I always felt this responsibility to kind of be it more masculine almost from that perspective, I guess. But like my parents are always never treated me like a girl. So I've never gone through life like that. But I do recognize even how I was treated a lot and like things I told myself, like, oh, I'm not really good at math. I'm not too analytical. And like, I remember taking like aptitude tests in high school and it's like, you should be a nurse because I'm great with people, but then I'm an investor relations. So the two things do go together just because you have good people skills doesn't mean you can't work in any kind of financial driven industry. So I believe it really starts from 
a young age. My hope, and I don't have kids, but my hope is that kids today are not getting that same level of you can either be this or that. And do you think that also is one of the reasons that the stigma is associated with women as investors as well, even though the numbers bear out that women are actually better investors than men and like all levels. And I don't know the stats off the top of my head, but I've seen a lot of these numbers and I frankly believe it. But in our world, in commercial real estate, especially, there is this thought that women are not participating as much as men are investing in commercial real estate. Do you think that's due to those same factors that you mentioned earlier? I think it starts there. Yeah. And I think for commercial real estate specifically, also, people don't get into it from a formal path. I mean, I know that there's MRADs, like I know that there's like real estate development masters, but like, for example, I can, I think about myself always in this because I went into finance from a really young age. I started working in a bank when I was 18. So I figured that part out. I figured out financial independence as a form of my own, like independence, freedom, empowerment, but I never learned about real estate. I didn't even think that was an option outside of being a real estate agent, and then when I got into real estate after years in insurance, hedge funds, like banks, financial institutions, it blew me away. I had no idea it was even an option because it was always such a private commercial real estate investing, at least was very private, like private placements, country club, who's in the country clubs, men. And so I think, it, again, it kind of goes back to just the way that our society is structured. And I've noticed that as I've really set it as a goal for myself to be more in touch with more women that are in the industry, I'm finding a lot of them. And I'm finding a lot more coming kind of like online into the space more recently. I mean, when I got started in this in 2013 with crowdfunding, with real estate crowdfunding, there was like, like I could count them on one hand, the women that I met in the space overall. And now there are a lot more. They're not all in the position of principles. A lot of them are in marketing. Like Again, it kind of goes back into that role. So I think it's also a stepping up for women. It's a getting past this these ideas that we tell ourselves like, oh, I can't do this. I couldn't do this. And realizing that we absolutely can. So it's like a sea change that has to happen. And I've seen more women in the space. I encourage it a lot. And hopefully that just builds. Because it would seem like a huge missed opportunity. We've seen kind of the numbers in terms of the amount of wealth that women actually manage versus men. This handoff between baby boomers and millennials. Women are are standing to inherit or be stewards of a, a vast amounts of money. But there are very few organizations. You're one of the ones that stick out in my mind that actually orient towards the female investor. Could you maybe unpack some of the identity issues associated with with women that they might have when it comes to being a proactive investor? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so the number, as far as I understand it from some of the research is that women stand to inherit $30 trillion in the next 10 years. That's a lot. (laughs) That is a remarkable amount of money. They will also inherit their financial advisors that come with that money. And in financial advisory as well, it's mostly men. And I've seen some of the financial advisor firms kind of make a push towards better messaging for women because it's it really literally is like, because the father, let's say from the baby boomers inheriting and, and down the line, it was always the men who managed the money. I mean, 
I know women who have no idea what's going on because their husband does that. There are still women today that don't even have their own bank accounts. Like that still exists. And that, that was very prevalent, like even in the seventies and the eighties, which is not that long ago. So we're just going through this like inheritance. And so this transfer of wealth is also going to come with a transfer of financial advisors that are largely going to be men. They worked with their fathers or their husbands or what have you. And so there's an opportunity for change there and for a different approach. So I'm going to start with that because for a woman who believes, I don't know what I'm doing. They know better than me. It's so scary. Stock markets up and down. Don't eat, you know, like let's not even get into cryptocurrency, like crazy volatility, all that kind of stuff. And then, and then if they come into any kind of contact with real estate and they hear the kinds of returns that are possible, the answer is always that's too good to be true. There's no way that you could be achieving, you know, the IRRs that we're all achieving. We are, you are, you know, like they're just like, nope, can't possibly, cannot be possible. It's a scam. So there's an immediate kind of wall of protection because women tend to be risk averse. The reason they're, they're researched to be better investors is because they take a little less risk. They hold for longer. They don't trade in and out of things. And so that just over time, as a principle helps you amass more wealth if you're not always messing with it and like taking short-term losses and gains, et cetera. So there's like the, there's the two sides to me that are complementary, but because there's, maybe it's not a risk aversion as much as an awareness of risk. So there's more awareness of risk, which can turn into aversion, which then becomes fear, which then is like, well, I'm just going to stay over here because it's safer. Women also tend to sit on their cash more because it makes you feel safe. I have all this money in the bank. I feel safe. We know this is not true. Never has been with inflation running the way it's running right now more than ever. That's a losing proposition. And so that requires a coming out of a comfort zone to take risk, to learn something that let's face it, there's a big learning curve to understand investing. And you know, if, if we're not geared towards it or not, like I think it also requires some passion, like some real wanting to understand it, some excitement, like it's usually dry and heavy. So there's a lot of factors that go into it, a lot of emotion that goes into it as well. So we have a lot of things to overcome as women to be comfortable with taking even just a little more risk that will provide long-term support and security, which is ultimately what we're after. It seems completely unfair, but true that a woman who does well financially will be painted with a brush of being greedy, right? Mm -hmm. This concept of avarice. Whereas if when a man does well financially, he's successful and it's it's a different stigma and different definition and verbiage associated with it. How do you balance that doing good versus doing well with this greediness concept that's been foisted upon women? Yeah, it's a tough one. There's like, even if you watch, like you can pick out multiple media sources, movies, TV shows, et cetera, where, you know, like the kept woman, the woman that marries just because she wants the the man's money. And, And it's been painted over and over and over again. And we absorb those messages as a society, as culture. We don't even know that we're doing it. And I've battled with that. I mean, even though I went into a financial sort of career early on internally, that was a battle for me around some form of like constant, like overarching judgment and, and shame, which ultimately 
affects the way that you think and the way that you behave and the way you act. And so it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy in terms of not really succeeding or always feeling like if I like, let's say did succeed financially that I would be judged. And so there's an energetic component. It's a subconscious component that, I mean, so much of what we are and do and be is how we're programmed subconsciously, which is why I like to talk about these things. And I like to say, like, I struggled for most of my life with this idea that money was bad and that to some level I didn't deserve it. And I think that's true for most women because yeah, like to your point, you see out there, there's a lot of messages that say that if women want money or have money, it's bad. And women have also been told it's impolite to talk about money. It's not discreet. And whereas men are are celebrated, they're celebrated for it. And that's at this point, I would say par for the course, right? Like we know that that's the way it is. We know that we don't have to absorb or believe those messages. And that's an inner, that's an inside job. That's like an inside job. And so I really encourage women to, and I really want, I want more women to be investing and to have their money work for them because we all operate under a paradigm of I'm going to work for my money. There's a different paradigm, which is the the beauty of passive commercial real estate investing, which my money works for me. It makes me money. Money is a multiplier. It's an amplifier. And it's a real sea change to think my money needs to work for me. And then once that starts to land, that's, I think that starts to like melt and unravel all these old messages because it just makes sense that if you have money, it's not about hiding it and keeping it and hoarding it, it actually needs to be put into motion in order for it to amplify. Yeah. There's a close family friend of mine. She was in the, she's in the event business. Her business had a lot of trouble last two years. She had to go through bankruptcy. And we had a conversation the other night about how she feels shame associated with having to go through the bankruptcy process. And my retort was, this is the state of affairs with business. And this is why America is so great is we have very lenient bankruptcy laws. And I mean, look at the president, former president, he declared bankruptcy multiple times. This isn't something to be shameful of. This is, you know, part of your learning process. And nobody would, would accuse you of doing that kind of personally. She referred to it as a scarlet letter in many ways. Whereas I think for men, it was almost be a, a red badge of courage. Do you see that within the women investors that you know as well, that hesitancy to take on that risk? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I hesitate a little with this next statement, but I think it's because women get it worse than men do. Like if a woman, I'm not trying to be a feminist at all, but it's just the reality of it. And we don't even know it until we observe it until like we, we come to terms with it because there's way more stigma. There's just so much more stigma and we also internalize it. And I hope that she can work through that because you're right in America, I've lived in five countries and there's no place in the world like America for starting, for succeeding, for achieving. Like there's like, and I was born and raised in Canada. So, and it's not exactly the same. It's not exactly the same, very similar, but it's not the same. It doesn't have that same fire, that same like, I'm going to go make something happen as here. And I've worked with startups a lot and the fail fast, fail forward, like that's exists in startup. So there's like, to me, it's like an an encouragement to say, but that exists in, in all small businesses because small businesses are the lifeblood of America. It didn't work. It's okay. Not everything works forever, 
And, you know, it kind of is what it is. A lot of businesses went under, a lot of them did. There are certainly, you know, I would be more concerned if there was like fraud, (laughs) but like if something didn't work out because of the pandemic, a recession, all of these like things that we couldn't possibly imagine, then, then that's just an opportunity to start again. And you're right. We have a, a system that financially, we have so many opportunities to rebuild. I mean, honestly, with like private credit, there's, there's so much more when we start to look for it. If we don't, if we don't know about it, then we wouldn't know about it. But when you start to to look and ask and, and find like private lenders, like there's all kinds of people that have been through the same exact thing and they're going to actually help you because they know what it's like to be basically like judged and not have access to credit. Because we know, I think maybe that's a big concern for her too, is like, she can't have access to credit. We need credit to build our businesses. Right. So yeah, I just like I guess like a hope or a prayer for her is that that she can kind of work through what that is and see it as a blessing and an opportunity to rebuild. So speaking of risk, you took a risk when you pivoted away from a personal life that you had experienced as well as a professional life and you've made many moves around there and you seem like you're in an incredible place today. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the personal journey? And the professional journey that took you into the crowdfunding real estate world that you uh, exist in now? Yeah, I'll preface it by saying that I'm very atypical when it comes to risk. I have a really high risk tolerance and I tend to leap pretty easily. And I don't think about it. That's the thing. Like when I have like big life things where I leap, it comes from a deep inner place of knowing where. There's like no, there's no alternative. This is what I have to do. And I've had several moments like that in my life that were basically the equivalent of destruction of a life, my first marriage, and really a business that I had with my sister at the same time that all kind of like crumbled and, and fell away. And I had to start over and I did. And, and I have this sense always of, I'm always going to be okay. There's something that I know this to be true, that I'm always going to be okay And so I've never really been afraid to start over and to take risk. I also really like, I like the future. Like I like innovation. I like to be where things are changing because I believe that change and innovation is evolution and that we're getting better. Like if you don't pay attention to the media, like the primary media, we're as a humanity, we're getting better. And so I get really excited by opportunities to do different things that also have a better impact on people. And so that's what really brought me into the the crowdfunding space was I was at that point in my life where I was really lost. You know, I was restarting absolutely everything, brand new everything. And so in a way, that's the space of possibility. And so it's just, it's like a reframe. It's like a space of, of possibility. And so I went into crowdfunding without any preconceived notions of what it would be other than I thought it was an amazing opportunity to give access to real estate, which I understood to be a wealth generator, but I never knew how to do that. I never learned it in all of my years doing different kinds of finance and investing. I have like a new career out of it, which has been incredible. The most amazing people in the space that I've met. And even that journey of like being part of a startup, being part of a new industry, really like that was amazing. And now it's like all crowd crowdfunding has done so much for capital formation, for access. Like it's done so much. It's also made everybody step up their game as it relates to transparency. 
as it relates to like honesty of, of your deals, the ability for people to really access whether somebody knows what they're doing and is honest. And it's also made the sponsor on the sponsor side or the, the people seeking capital side have to be clearer about what they're doing, you know, what their purpose is and also the marketing side, right? Like you have a website, we have a website, like everything has changed so that it's one, it's like a giant communication channel that creates. So communication creates access, creates opportunity, creates confidence, and it just goes over and over and over again. So I think fundamentally that's my perspective. And I go with change. And if I ever feel like I'm resisting change, it's probably because I know something big is coming and and happening. And I can either go down fighting or I can accept that and try to make it a little more easeful of a move, which has not always been something that I understood, but I understand that today. So you got into crowdfunding in 2013. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What was the industry like then? to get into the ground floor and have the type of position that you had in that organization? I mean, it was like the wild, wild west. I mean, I remember going to the first conference, the first crowdfunding conference, and it was at the San Diego Convention Center. And that's a huge convention center. And I had been going to San Diego Convention Center for Comic-Con for about eight years, because that's a business that I had with my sister. So 250,000, 300,000 people, color, lights, camera action, like the most, it was, it's a wild place. If you've ever been, or people talk about Comic-Con and like, I roll up to this and it's a small dark room with like maybe 50 people. And I just thought it felt like a twilight zone. I was like, what is this? I have no idea. It's like all these like little tables. I was used to these massive, like Mattel, Disney displays, like whatever vampire series were going on at the time. And I just, it was like a real moment. I was like, this is crazy. But I watched and I listened to every single presentation. And I just remember um, thinking or feeling or having a really strong intuition about like, this is something really big. And so I talked to everybody there. And because at the time I was very involved with branding and marketing, I joined the company called Patch of Land as their CMO, as employee number one, like that crazy first person that is going to say, okay, like, let's try to do this. And then it was just like this wild ride from there on out. But I had a sense of it being something big. So that was 10 years ago. Almost, yeah. (laughs) To be close. (laughs) Wow. I don't mean to date you, but you know, just to give right. context here, what do you think you all got right when you were working at Patch of Land? And what were the assumptions or the operations that you now realize were inefficient, missed the mark, mm-hmm. and is something that's not what the industry is moving towards today? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And that's across the whole industry because there's been consolidation and some companies have, you know, have gone under, et cetera. I think what everybody got right was the Jobs Act and the opportunity that was bringing for access to capital and capital formation at a time which, of course, in hindsight, we can understand that was the beginning of the next leg up. We were coming out, like strongly coming out of the the Great Recession. So we hit the bottom and we were starting to go up. So I think in general, there was that understanding. There was the understanding. What we got right was knowing that the internet was the future of communication and appropriately using that for that purpose. And what we got right was understanding there would be demand from individuals. 
I think what started with the right intention, but ended up, in my opinion, not being correct is that it is not a tech forward play because it's not. I mean, technology is in service to the underwriting. I mean, you could automate to a level, let's say in lending, right? Let's say in lending, you could create a level of automation of underwriting, like let's say hard money loans at scale. And that eventually did happen. I mean, that was really created in the peer-to-peer space by Prosper and Lending Club because it's 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 algorithmic and you can do it. And when you're doing it at scale, then you understand like risk and loss. You can't automate underwriting of the equity side of capital stack of a deal. You just can't. And so, and it's not about tech. There isn't a tech multiple from an exit perspective either, because it's a marketplace. So there's the supply and demand of investors and deals. And so I think what a lot of people realized over time, and this is something that when I first met Alpha Investing, I was still in in crowdfunding space. And I thought, oh, they understand that it's a real estate play. They weren't trying to be crowdfunding. And in fact, you know, we're not. They understand that this is a real estate business. And that's really important. And all the big players, like especially like Realty Moguls with Jillian Hellman, I have so much respect for her and commend her with Realty Mogul because she's been able to really use all of the legislation around the Jobs Act, Reg A+, et cetera, to do e-REITs. But she runs a real estate business and she knows it. And she's not shy about that. Like she's she... But in the beginning, everybody was like, we're a tech company, we're a tech company, we're a tech company. So that was the really big thing. And the second big thing that is what caused some companies to not succeed is that if you're taking on too much venture capital and you need to scale and hit certain targets and you need to scale by doing a lot of deal flow, your underwriting may get compromised. And that was a big one. Agree wholeheartedly across the board. I won't name names, but there are certain crowdfunding groups out there who they see themselves as a B2C SaaS tech company. They want that multiple on the firm. Their cost of customer acquisition is crazy high. They're burning through massive amounts of cash. And they don't see themselves as fundamentally real estate firms. And there's a lot of friction costs between themselves and the GPs and the sponsors they work with. And I think their product suffers because of that. But they're just in different businesses, to your point. Mm-hmm. They don't think of themselves as a real estate company, even though that's how they market it. Mm-hmm. So talk about your journey from patch of land to alpha. What did that look like? How did you all connect? And maybe tell people a little bit more about what you're doing at Alpha. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we connected through just through networking, I, I guess would be the easiest way to put it. It was just like I was introduced to them towards the end of my time with patch of land and you know, I do a lot of business development. It's really part of my role, part of what I do. And yeah, I just really appreciated what they were doing. You know, they were small. There was the four founders at the time. So this was like end of 2016, like early 2017. And I did some consulting for a while. I did some consulting, you know, coming out of being the CMO there of like really helping scale that company. I mean, when I joined, I was employee number one. So I was the fourth person there. We scaled to 40 raised a series A. So I had like, you know, I was in fintech and and so I did a lot of consulting and that was really great. And then, you know, and then towards 
towards the end of 2017, I really went through a period which was really kind of part of like the second kind of big awakening in in my life where basically like my whole life fell apart. (laughs) My whole life fell apart. I was doing some work and it kind of started with I wasn't able to succeed the way that I normally succeeded and I couldn't understand what was going on. But I felt like inside me, I felt like something was changing. And it really reminded me of what I felt when in 2011, when I had left my personal life, when I left my marriage, it was toxic. And and I just kind of woke up and realized like, I can't be in this relationship. I can't be in this life anymore. And it was something really similar. It was like very like in my body. I'm like, what's going on? And it was really like a big, big awakening around my identity, my whole identity as this successful business person. Cause at that time, like crowdfunding and FinTech and, and I was like succeeding. And then all of a sudden I wasn't, I didn't know what was going on. And so I went through several months of burnout, really of just like questioning everything about who am I, if I'm not a successful business person, because um, to be like, to be perfectly honest, like I wasn't making any money. I was broke. I had a house under construction. I could not get anything to work. And I was freaking out because that's not me. That can't possibly be me. And then if I'm not a successful business person, then who am I? And so this is a real period of, I call it my dark night of the ego, not the soul. My soul was totally fine. But from the perspective of identity, I I had to do a really deep soul searching about who am I. And this all really led to, honestly, to my book, because I had to learn so much about myself because I thought I was a person with a role and a label and and feelings, yes, but I didn't realize like who I really am and and where that all comes from. But to put it simply, like I, I really had to find my own set of values and detach from whoever I thought my parents wanted me to be, who I thought my peers thought I should be, all of it, that I had to go through all of that. And I came to a point, I came to a point where it was kind of like 11th hour was just so, so very, very upset because I thought I was going to be like defaulting pretty soon on, on mortgage, on like construction costs, on, you know, all kinds of things. And I just remember thinking, I really, really just want to go back into the business world. Like I just, I want to go back. I really want partners who appreciate me for who I am and are aligned to my values. And three days later, Fark, who's the CEO of Alpha, he's the CEO today. He called me and because we'd been staying in touch and he was like, Hey, I'm coming to LA, you know, would love to catch up with you. I hadn't met him in person. And so he came to LA and we, we caught up and we were having a conversation. And essentially he's, he said, you know, would you consider coming on to Alpha as one of the partners? And that story to me is like, you know, the secret manifestation, like magic, but it came at the perfect time because I was ready. I figured out what it was that I really wanted and what I love to do. And I had to have the courage to say that to myself, even though I was like kind of shaking my fist at God, so to speak, because I, I was so freaking out. I was really freaking out. And we had conversations about it. And I said from the very beginning, and what I really loved in the alignment with them was they weren't trying to be a tech company. They weren't trying to do crazy marketing. Cause like we talked about, I mean, your cost of acquisition when you're scaling like that is just not sustainable. And we had the same values. And so I joined and that was in mid 2018 and I joined and so did Ann Lynn who's our head of underwriting. 
two of the original founders were leaving and that left Dan and Fark. And then Anne and I joined and the four of us have just scaled it ever since. And we're just closing out 2021 with just a blowout years to our surprise in a sense, because it seems sudden, but as you know, like it's not sudden, it's a lot of really hard work, but I couldn't be more grateful for such an alignment of like intentions and values in how we run the business, how we treat our investors, like how we pick our sponsors, like all of it. And so that's how I started working with them. It came from an 11th hour kind of like realization, but not to say I already knew them. They didn't just come out of like the literal blue. Like I knew them and had been informally advising them, but the timing of things I've found in life, no longer surprise me if I'm willing to just let go of control. And then the best things happen when I'm just like really open and surrendered. And you all have a presence in Nashville, which is how I initially yeah. connected with you. There's some vulnerable connections there. And I think you're being modest. You guys have been killing it for the last <laughs> couple of years, which is awesome to see. As I was preparing for our conversation, I should have probably run this by you on the pre-call, but this idea of like creative destruction kept mm. coming back to me in terms of you would have moments or periods of your life where things would be going sideways or, you know, having to be taken apart. But then when you've, they've really led you to be able to accomplish more and more and be put back together. And now this whole work with Alpha about providing access and empowering the individual investor, it seems like you've hit this sublime period where you're combining your personal passions with your business acumen. Is that... Accurate. Uh, that is so accurate. Thank you for saying that. That's amazing. It's always amazing to hear other people's reflections because it's, you know, we're always in like our own head and, and world. Yeah, it's been a long journey for me to get to come around to this blending or this integration of personal with professional and not having these two separate worlds. It's one world. So I bring all of myself into what I do when I have conversations with my investors or what have you. I mean, we end up like, we talk about things that matter and we talk about the deals and that's all well and good too. But it's also just like, instead of being in my ego about it, I'm in a, a really surrendered place. I can call it my soul. Like it's just a different place and it doesn't have to be woo or spiritual or anything. It's just that I'm not trying so hard to be in control of every single thing that's going to happen to me in my life. And I just let things roll. And if they're meant to be, they're meant to be. And if they're not meant to be, then they're not meant to be. And somehow I've been able to find that blend. And the more I kind of relax into, I don't have to have all the answers to every single thing in life. I don't have to fix the world. I don't have to do this alone, which is a huge theme in my life of being overly independent and being afraid to ask for help when we live in a world and we're a, a culture and a society and a race, a humanity that's like, we're built to be around each other. And so it's all levels of trust. And, and that trust is also with my partners, with Alpha, with all of it. Com it comes down to trust and, and relationships, but I had to let go of fear and mistrust for whatever reasons, and also trusting in something greater than me, because I really didn't, I really kind of went through most of my life thinking that I literally was alone, but I'm really not. And my opinion is that vulnerability, that sincerity that you talk about through your book, through your podcast, through the content you create is why you're so good at being a marketer and imparting the message that Alpha is uh, sending out 
to other individuals and investors. And so I, I commend you. It's not easy to do. It is uncomfortable, but you seem to have gotten to a place where you're at peace with it and you've, you're really thriving because of it. So kudos to you. Thank you. It's like, I was thinking about it this morning when I was working out, cause I really dislike cardio. I really do, but Join my body, right. But my body is like, needs it. And I was thinking, I was like, God, this is so uncomfortable. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But it's the only way for my body to feel the way I want it to feel. And so I had this whole internal reflection while I'm doing cardio that I hate about discomfort. And we don't grow in our comfort zone, period. My body doesn't change in a comfort zone. I mean, it does change not the way I want it to, but like I can't be fit in my comfort zone. And it's the same in all of life. And then at the end of the day, it's short-lived. The discomfort is always really short-lived. That like awkward conversation you don't want to have or the, you know, the 20 minutes of cardio, whatever it is, it's really short-lived, but the benefits or the reward or just like the beauty of what's on the other side of that is immeasurable. And even though it's hard for me still, sometimes it's always kind of scary, especially with people to be vulnerable because you don't know how they're going to respond. It's a practice and it's like a daily practice for me. So thanks for acknowledging that and seeing it because it's a lot of work. But if anyone is thinking, oh my God, I could never do that. Trust me, if I can do it, honestly, anybody can do it. This is something I spent a lot of time thinking about and doing homework on because there is, you know, I've got two boys and with millennial parents, oftentimes we can be accused of being snowpaw parents and like paving the way open for our kids. I try to have them exist in a period of, in a space of tension often, because that's really what life is, right? And if you avoid any tension or conflict, you may avoid anxiety, but you won't be able to progress because that's what this is, right? Dealing with these type of issues. And the more you embrace it, I think the better it will make you as a person, a human being long-term, the resiliency. So very germane to what I'm talking about at the dinner room table. Well, so this has been awesome. We're already kind of crushing 45 minutes here. If people want to learn more about the work that you do, the message that you have, alpha investing, we'll provide links in the show notes, but what's the best way for them to connect with you? I think if anybody wants to connect with me and come and find me on LinkedIn, that's going to be the easiest because I do, I have a lot of things going on. I have my own site. I have alpha, I have my mastermind for women. I have all kinds of things going on. So LinkedIn is generally the easiest place to come and find me and to connect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed getting to know you and the firm over the last really two, three years. Likewise. And, And again, I commend you for all the work that you're doing. I highly recommend people seek you guys out and especially connect with the content that you're creating. So thank you for joining us. And I look forward to see you have in store next year. Same here, Brian. Thank you. And same to you. You guys have been doing so much great, great work. I love the webinars. I love all the content. I'd love to see you like really like explode your presence to go back to that whole crowdfunding, what it was about marketing, et cetera. So yeah, I wish you all the best too. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 